Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is the fourth and possibly final volume, the 1980s. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips as we discuss The King of Comedy for episode 82. Benjamin, how you doing? I'm good. You're good. Are I'm you good. the king today? Um... I, would you rather be king for a night, uh, king for a podcast episode, or a schmuck for a podcast series? You know, <laughs> yeah, king of comedy, chosen, I believe, by both of us. I don't have the list in front of us. I, I think it's both of us. It is both of us. Okay, well, wonderful. Well, in that case, you can tell me all about your relationship with the movie. I only really started my Scorsese deep dive, kind of only a couple of years ago, actually, because I'd seen. The big movies. I'd seen, like, Your Goodfellas, Casino. I'd seen all the movies that he'd released in, like, the 2010s and since I was old enough to go see them in the cinema. But I was like, right, I need to go check off things that aren't Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. And, obviously, we're not going to say its name. There was a little movie coming out in 2019 that may have taken some influences from this movie. I mean, we agreed to not talk about it last year. I'm, uh, last episode. But... I'm not going to... I'm just saying... I was like, I'm going to check out this movie in the run-up to this other movie, which I'll not be named, look, releasing. Look, look, some people don't pay as much attention to our episodes. Maybe they tune out towards the end. I'm just going to say it, just to say it up front. The Joker is possibly the most shameless rip-off of another movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, because they just were like, what if we made the king of comedy, but instead of Rupert Pupkin, it was the Joker... And what if it was just really shit and offensive and lacked all of the like nuance and like intrigue and and tension and everything that makes King of Comedy good? And instead, what if it was like, what if we were like, we took the opinion that Rupert Pupkin is fucking awesome and we gave him a dance number sung by a paedophile? Anyone denying that they are like glamorizing Joker in that movie is fucking high, by the way. Anyway, uh, yes, I, I think it is one that, I mean, I would hope a lot of people know <laughs> like the degree to which Todd Phillips ripped this movie off, but I think, if you've seen I think The Joker one, and not this, go watch this. It's got a level of esteem now, this movie, because obviously it's kind of a bomb when it comes out, which I'm yeah. sure we'll we'll get into, but on the other level, like it's still kind of like the... The kind of like the pretentious, and I don't, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like the pretentious movie to say when you say what your your favorite Scorsese is. Well, I mean, so <laughs> Scorsese has come up a lot on the podcast. Uh, we did The Departed, uh, we did Goodfellas. You would not let us cover one of the three hour epics that were released in the two thousand tens. Nope, I fucking hate The Wolf of Wall Street, and I will not even watch The Irishman. Um, what about Silence? I probably don't want to watch that either. I like Shutter Island. We probably could have done Shutter Island. We could have done Shutter Island, but like um, 10 was already packed when yeah, we did that. But we should probably acknowledge that the big Scorsese 80s movie is Raging Bull. I don't know what to tell you. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I, I like what we do on this podcast, where we do quite often stump for the, the less consensus pick. <laughs> like us choosing to do not doing Forrest Gump. In yeah. our nineties miniseries, yeah. or doing Little Women and Bill Street over Lady Bird and and um, uh, and Moonlight, yeah, like like it's fun. It means that we get to highlight like not 
lesser movies, but movies that aren't quite often the consensus pick. And obviously, yeah. it does mean we're doing our like film bro nerd like solidifies by <laughs> going like, right, you guys all think that Raging Bulls. Scorsese's 80s masterpiece, but we're going to do King of Comedy. And just to lay out, they're both masterpieces, yeah. both I mean, great movies. I just... I would probably say Raging Bull is a better made movie. I just prefer this. I mean, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't give you a better answer than that. This isn't an objective podcast. This is better Matt's movies. So, <laughs> there you go. Uh, in mean, this if dec- we really wanted to be wanky, we would have done, like, Color of Money or something. Yeah, so, yeah, in this decade, Scorsese also does After Hours, Color of Money. And uh, his, what he saw to be his magnum opus, the thing chasing him his whole career, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. He had wanted to make a Jesus movie since he was like a teenager coming up wanting to make movies. Uh, he wanted to make that instead of The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro playing Jesus. And Robert De Niro's like, I don't want to do that. I want to make a fun comedy movie. <laughs> I don't, it's fun, but I don't think fun in the way that maybe he wanted it to be. <laughs> No, it, it's funny in the context of De Niro later on where he is doing the quote-unquote fun comedies yeah. that then become his entire <laughs> career. Last Intention of Christ is just a deeply funny like thing for Scorsese because like After Hours, I believe, was originally going to be like a Tim Burton script mm. um, and was going to be like an early Burton movie. Yeah. And then Scorsese is just like... Every single time he tries to make Last Temptation of Christ, it fails, and he always resorts <laughs> back to doing something smaller and like more in his wheelhouse, like these like New York set movies and whatnot. And he yeah. like Tim Burton was just like, if Scorsese wants to direct After Hours, then he can go direct After Hours. And it's just Scorsese's one of those people who like he has his passion projects, but if he can't make his passion project, he'll just go make something else. Yeah. Like whilst he's waiting for shit to to get sorted out there, yeah. I think that's the entire story with Silence. Is that like Silence is the other movie he spent most of his career trying to make. He is a deeply he does seem very intrigued by Faith. <laughs> he does, and I and I you know, Faith is one of my favorite things. I think Silence mm. is like a really great movie. It's a grueling watch, but like he is obviously someone who who likes the idea of like what does it mean for someone to be a spiritual person and that is something yeah. that like I am interested in as well it's why yeah, I like this makes the, sense. the works of Lindelof you, yeah you like uh, Matthew Jameson in The Leftovers and I yes. found him the most frustrating human being on the planet but that was good podcast content either way yeah absolutely and and you know he famously made himself quite unwell coming off of Taxi Driver New York New York Raging Bull I think he did a lot of cocaine didn't sleep a lot what, and, what do you uh, mean? I, I, no one in the 80s did cocaine, man. No, especially not Scorsese. I think you can see cocaine on his lip in the last waltz. <laughs> like, like, when, like when they cut to him, there is like visible cocaine. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, so, you know, he isn't really interested in making a big studio movie at this point. And, and as I said, De Niro purchases the rights and wants him to make it. They go through other people. Eventually, De Niro does talk him into it on the grounds of, you can shoot it in New York, away from Hollywood. And they, they do this really... like they, they film for like 20 weeks, which is quite a long time for a movie like that. But it's because they shoot for three hours a day, and then he just rests, allegedly, <laughs> the rest of the time. Which, you know, good for him, but quite an unusual... You know, you, we're used to hearing about these, like, 16-hour shooting days and stuff like that. Um, but maybe this is the way to do it. A lot of time, but not for very much each day. I mean, it's also quite, like, a, a small cast. It's, yeah. it's Obviously, there are scenes with Locke's actors in them, but, like, this really is kind of like there are three characters in this movie who are kind of propelling mm-hmm. things forward. 
yeah. ultimately. And it's it's just kind of back to basics filmmaking it's not there are no like big flashy shots that everybody is going to teach in in film school in this movie but it's just technically well made um and simple but like has a, a very raw energy about it he was thinking about quitting movies and getting into documentaries and i'm not saying this is shot like a documentary but it i don't know it it's it, it feels like he's taking that idea and trying to kind of present life, you know, in, in as simple a way as possible. And like Pupkin is his subject. And yeah, I mean, it, it's always been something that Scorsese's done off the side because he doesn't mm. direct any documentaries in the eighties. But obviously, he has The Last Waltz and American Boy in nineteen seventy-eight. So he's always dipping his toe in, and like he is kind of like Bob Dylan's go-to like documentarian. Because he's done two, I think, Bob Dylan documentaries. He's done a documentary on George Harrison. He obviously is like very much into that kind of like baby boomer kind of era of music, isn't he? Yeah, is old school. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you can hear it in the stuff that he makes as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> so this movie originally pitched for Andy Kaufman to star in, not a nice human being, <laughs> but would have made complete sense. Absolutely, it would. And then choices for the Jerry character. I mean, the first choice was Johnny Carson, who's never acted in anything. Um, and then they went through every individual member of the Rat Pack. And then I think Dean Martin used to like do a double act with Jerry Lewis. And then Jerry Lewis lands the role. De Niro stalked his own stalkers to prepare for the movie. <laughs> would like they would like hound him with these questions, and he'd be like, "Why do you want this from me? Tell me about your life," kind of thing. <laughs> All these really intrusive questions and. There, there was one I think Scorsese mentioned that like this the the guy's wife was like mortified by the entire experience and it like I think that's how you end up with like him and Rita at Jerry's house and Rita realizing what's going on before Rupert like drops the charade or anything and she's just like so embarrassed but yeah <laughs> I mean good times um so yeah I mean you mentioned already it was kind of a a huge bomb. Um, so they make it for a budget of $19 million. It makes only 2.5. De Niro has said that he blames it on, like, audiences didn't necessarily want to see something so uncomfortable. Um, so true to life kind of thing. Maybe that, I mean, I don't, you know, this comes out in 1983. I'm not really aware of what the marketing was like then. It feels like the kind of movie you could easily misrepresent when you're trying to promote it. Um, and, and make it seem like it's a more lighthearted affair than it is because it is a, you know, there is some music, but it is a largely silent, tense movie. Like, there is so much tension in this that, like, it is on a constant, like, oh, what's gonna happen next kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's so, um, the, one of the directors who was, like, lined up to do this, as of course, says he was Bob Fosse, who mm. I've literally just, like, finished watching his entire filmography. And the movie he decides to make instead of this is Star 80, which is another movie about that kind of like celebrity culture and the way that it eats itself like it's a movie about a a playboy model who is murdered by her estranged husband and it's like a deeply deeply uncomfortable thing you can see them as like i don't want to call them like sister projects because they're mm. both dealing in like very different things but it is very much about the idea of like fame and the ways in which people latch onto fame and try and like inhabit it in themselves star 80 is a darker like far darker movie because it's all about like the systematic kind of like destruction of a woman 
but you can but like it feels interesting that you have those kind of movies these two movies being released in 1983 but you're also kind of like comparing it to it's also the year that like Return of the Jedi comes out so you have this like weird dichotomy where like the highest grossing movie of the year is this like ultimate consummation of Hollywood into being about merchandising and and like all that kind of stuff and then on the other side of it you have these dark movies about celebrity culture and yeah America's like dark obsession with celebrity and and like I think that core principle of the movie makes it still like so watchable today in a way that you know there are certain movies of yesteryear that feel a little bit dated now and of another era and it's like no this is worse if anything like yeah I mean I think one of my favorite undercurrents of this movie is just the ways in which very obviously the system has failed like Pupkin and Masha. Mm-hmm. Like, like, in, in you know, a less like, offensive way than Joker does it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joker, Joker, all right, Go we on. have, we have, we to, have to. to. Joker does this thing where the entire movie is like, he's being diagnosed, but he's not getting the support he needs. He's not getting the medication, but it's generic medication. He's not being diagnosed or something. Whereas this movie does it in a far more interesting way where it's just like, this is a guy who very obviously has sense of delusion, sense of grandeur. Mm-hmm. There is something deeply, deeply wrong with him, but he hasn't... No one is interested in finding out what's wrong with this guy. No. Like We're just letting this person loose on the streets, yeah. and he is able to do whatever he wants. And obviously, I presume part of that is he's not violent. Like, th- there's nothing to do with this person because he isn't a violent person. Even the kidnapping is, like, the least violent thing they could do. Like, I mean, he drops the gun immediately. It's a fake gun and he drops it immediately. And then, like, the comical way in which he's taping him up and all of that. Like, But it just feels so... I mean, even to put it into, like, real-life context for myself, like, I have met these people in places of work yeah. where there are, like, there are just these people who will not understand what you're saying to them. Mm-hmm. Like, they have in their head an idea of how something works, and you'll explain it to them in plain English, and they'll go, like, right, but you can you can just do that for me, right? And, just, and, and I think that's the thing that just kind of, like, made me it made me even more deeply unsettled, like, made me madder than what Joker did, is because it's like, we're failing these people. Mm-hmm. These people obviously need help, and all we're doing is we're, we're putting them into a situation where they have to fend for themselves, and they don't have the lens on life that kind of allows them to actually like perceive reality as people are informing them. Yeah, there's there, there is just this pervasive sense of him just not picking up on social cues. Um, and you know, we you could get into like armchair diagnosing him with this and that, but like just simple interactions, like oh, drop us in a tape, is kind of code for like fuck off, dude. And he's like, no, I will make the tape and I'll bring it in. And then like, yeah, so there's some stuff on the tape that is good, but you need to work on some stuff and go to clubs and stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, it's the thing that really annoyed me about the the um, the Wikipedia article is like they talk about like he gets rebuffed. I'm like, they kind of... That's about actually... the nicest rejection you could possibly have. And like, yeah, there's like, actual they genuine advice. And it's like, when she's like, yeah, you should go and actually practice your act in front of live... There is no evidence whatsoever he's attempted to be a live, like, comedy club comedian and it's and it's like you know he just wants to go straight to being a famous tv comedian like a, a celebrity he wants to be famous i think more than he wants to be a good comedian and he talks the talk at times like he name drops all these like the different types of comedy 
But it all just sounds like he's read it out of a book and he has no context what any of it means. And as I say, there's no evidence he's attempted to be a guy that does comedy clubs and all of that. And it's just, I think it goes hand in hand with his sort of detachment from reality or, or like just failing to pick up on cues and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's deeply yeah. interesting to me. It, it's so, it is so fascinating to like look at what his delusion is. And it's like, I've done the work, I've done the research, I'm... I'm fully formed. Yes. But like what he hasn't done is like it, it seems like he skipped over all the parts where people will talk about the hardship. He's just read the bits where people are famous. Yeah. And so he has all these people coming up to him and saying, like, do some clubs, get get a steady job, and then maybe we'll invite you on the show. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Yeah, I don't need to do that. Like yeah. I've, I've read from the masters. Yeah. Like yeah. I, and, and I like know when how he's, the joke's destructed. Yeah. When he's talking to uh, Rita at dinner and and or like about Marilyn Monroe, like he he talks about her like he's quoting a book, you know, like like there is no, you just get the sense, you know, we never see this and this is all just speculation, but you just get the sense this guy just sits there and, and you know, if it were in modern times, he would read a shitload of Wikipedia and call him and try and pass it off as his own opinions and stuff. And like, he tries to present as knowledgeable and, you know, he's always wearing suits and he tries to present himself as the reasonable one of this group. Because I mean, you know, the, the movie begins with like, there is this like network of of these fame hungry autograph hounds. Some of them, if you want to use the term stalker, like you know, they all know each other, you know, and like they. <laughs> and it's clear from the beginning he is part of this group, and then he, you know, ends up in the car with Jerry and like tries to to he he's basically going to be like, oh, I'm not like them, I'm the reasonable one, and like that does sort of work for him where he kind of gets a bit of conversation out of Jerry, but then he just can't pick up on the cue of like right say goodbye now and not understanding that i'll call the office is like i'm never gonna see you again (laughs) um and it's just yeah it's it's just very funny in that way that like he tries to present himself as reasonable and at times he is charming enough to like talk his way into a situation like he does talk his way into a date with rita that he then blows by trying to like come across as like a big dog or whatever you know you know like he's trying to come across as a big shot and like what he thinks is his trump card of his book of autographs and stuff, she completely turns her off. Like leaves her very cold. Um, but he did charm his way into the date in the first place, and like, he did briefly get Jerry's attention. He gets a chuckle out of him with the pride and joy thing. He does kind of talk his way into like, oh, we'll maybe review the tape by tomorrow, but it's probably going to be Monday too. Like, look, definitely tomorrow. Okay, just go away today. And that you know, th- there are just these little pockets of moments where it's like. There is, you know, if you just, <laughs> in the same way he needs to work on his comedy, he needs to just slightly fine-tune his social skills. There is there is something, I think that's the thing that makes it so interesting, is like, obviously, there is a sense where, like, you're watching this, you know, just frustrated that he's not taking people at their word. Yes. Like, when they when they say, like, we'll get to it tomorrow or Monday, he's like, well, I'm going to sit here then until you listen to it. And it's like, mm. just, like... And I don't know how much of that is him thinking like I'm being fobbed off here, and so I need to like, assert my ground so that it is I'm guaranteed a time because like that's yeah. that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a time to come back, like he's looking for like something concrete. He wants and, an like, appointment, yeah. <laughs> and that's what, and I think that's kind of like what the undercurrent is like when he's in Jerry's house in <laughs> in upstate New York. Like the whole point of that is because Jerry hasn't explicitly said I want you to leave or whatever, like he kind of, like, keeps on, like, chancing it and chancing it until eventually Jerry's just like, you need to leave. And then he still keeps on trying to come back just to go, like, it'll take half an hour. We'll just go through my tape. Yeah, You'll yeah, give yeah. me some notes. And then, 
and but yeah, like before we deep dive, into it, we <laughs> yeah, do sorry, we went quite deep there already. Yeah, uh, so yeah, released February of nineteen eighty three. Uh, it's one hundred nine. Apart, apart from its sneaky Iceland two weeks earlier. Yeah, like, I don't know what Iceland did release. to get it into into late eighty two, but you know, there is there is a genuine split in terms of when this movie comes out. Like IMDb and the movie list I use for kind of like the acclaimed movies it says it's nineteen eighty three, but like. Letterbox to Wikipedia about that's nineteen eighty two because it came out in Iceland. It's like really, like yeah. really. <laughs> well, why don't you read from that website that, that you use for the critical acclaim movies and tell us yes. all about nineteen eighty three? Our first nineteen eighty three. You've got Saint Soleil, Largent, Videodrome, David Cronenberg, uh, but other here other movies on this list. You've got Scarface, Zelig, uh, The Right Stuff. If you like your space movies, <laughs> it's it's a relatively kind of like light year yeah. for definitive movies really like i feel like videodrome king of comedy are kind of like the two mm-hmm. i i watched siskel and ebert's like top 10 of 1983 a couple of days ago because i just finished star 80 and was intrigued to hear like a contemporary thought of star 80 and they have it in the top 10 and both of them have the right stuff as their number one movie so but that that feels very much like the the kind of like the dad movie of the year is going to be your big like space epic yeah <laughs> um, not on this list, or not, not on our list that we not have on our list. For this. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting year. It feels like a like a relatively minor year in the in the grand scheme of things, especially when you think that like it's also the year that kind of the worst of the original trilogy of Star Wars comes out. Like, but also like this does feel like a true kind of like hidden highlight. I mean, you watch the critical reception of this movie, and most critics are like, yeah, it's good. Obviously, inevitably, Pauline Kale is like the voice of dissent when you're reading through the opinions but like i know that of all the collaborations that scorsese and de niro have had like i think they both think that like this is their favorite like the favorite performance their favorite collaboration kind of together it just feels i think because it's so much more intimate and small and and like um really kind of a two two-hander i mean arguably a three-hander but i mean it's kind of driven mostly by the rupert jerry relationship and then and then like Masha is like coming in here and there um you know she has a huge moment at the end which is incredible work by Sandra Bernard just the erratic way in which she's conducting that one-sided conversation (laughs) is incredible but I mean I don't you know we as as you've acknowledged you know we we kind of already started diving into what makes this work and I don't know where to go with it next, but I mean, like, I, I will say up front, I think it's incredible the commitment they have to making everybody, every single person get his name wrong. Um, <laughs> Rupert Pumpkin, Rupert Cupkin, uh, <laughs> all kinds of. It's a fantastic twist, and like possibly like one of the best fake names I've ever seen in a movie, mm. because it is like I was getting it wrong. In my own head. Rupert Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. It's often pronounced and spelled wrong, so he spells it out every time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I I think it helps, like, sell this idea of this, like, downtrodden man that's been ignored by society kind of thing, that, like, nobody can even get his name right, like, that basic human courtesy. And, you know, you can put a lot of it down to, like, this is the entertainment industry, and, like, they, they don't have a lot of time. Everything is, you know, breakneck speed, and they're meeting a lot of people. And they do actually kind of, towards the end especially, there is a kind of window into all of the people that work at this network are idiots, kind of thing. <laughs> they're high-powered idiots who don't have a lot of time. But, like, when you see them away from him, 
right? When they're just talking to each other, there is just this kind of like frustrating bureaucracy and like, you know, that they can't get in contact with each other in the same way that he can't get in contact with Jerry. They're like struggling to connect with each other. You know, Jerry's lawyer wants to sue everybody. It's so... Obviously, it's very much of its time, and you really appreciate that. Like, all of the phone calls in this movie and, like, the sense of, like, no one being able to pin down exactly what's going on, him standing by the payphone, like, aggressively oh, protecting it and, like, holding down... So he looks like he's on the phone, but he's but it's actually able to ring, and he's just yeah. standing there for hours, falling asleep, and, like... You know, lucky to not get his ass kicked, quite frankly, taking the only working phone or one of the only working phones for hours. Just... I mean, again, it's it's so interesting thing, like because obviously everyone seems to think that like he has a job. Like he's is he a deliberate like a delivery person? Like he's got like one scene he, where he yeah, I think he like works in the mailroom of a um. What's he even? Work? I can't remember where he works. Like, yeah, it's that like one scene where he like goes upstairs and then uses the phone to like call Jerry from yeah. from the office. But that's the only moment we see him in work. He's, he's like time... handing post to people at desks. So you know, he I guess he works in the mailroom of some office job or some company or other. And like, yeah, he asks politely if we can use the phone. That's the only time we see him have any kind of like thing that somewhere that he needs to be, and then mm-hmm. any other time a character is like. Yeah, they they very deliberately kind of keep his personal life uh, and his his life other than this quite a mystery. Like we hear his mother, we don't see her. Um, you know, at the end when he does his big routine, so much of it is concentrated on his family, and you're like, you know, if not for the fact we know his mother is alive because we hear her all the time, or do or we? Do like... we <laughs> it's like, oh, is this the window into why he is how he is? Because it's this routine about how his mother's an alcoholic. His father beat him up. Does his sister have a sex change or something like that? I don't know. They say his his sister's kind of more of a tomboy, I think. And then sister's more like... a tomboy, and like you know, all this, you know, he got bullied, and everyone was doing this and that, and it's like, oh, here's the window into why he is how he is, and. You know, he has the fancy sequence about his high school principal marrying him and Rita on the air. And like, oh, we want to apologise for everything we did to you. And like, yeah, like the mother could just be, you know, a voice in his head. Like, it's just an unseen voice. It's it's uh, Catherine Sos- Scorsese. Um, Scorsese gets his parents into most of his movies, if he can. So yeah, we never see her. But it's like, no, you have two readings there. Either <laughs> she is dead. You know, he's just hearing voices and shouting back at them and stuff. Or he's just fabricated a, a routine that is sort of like close to reality, but not quite. Because I mean, he, you know, he... or or is he just kind of like he is mastered it, and so he's looking into like what other comedians exactly. joke about, and is just like, well, my life isn't like that. Yeah. So why don't I do this kind of like extended bit where I kind of like make up all this shit? Like that's that's what's kind of so interesting yeah. about this character is that like. That is the first insight into any of his personal life yeah. that you get the entire movie. But obviously there is some level of like resentment. Like as you said, like obviously there are the frequent fantasy sequences throughout the movie and the one where he gets married by his like school yeah. principal. All the ones where Jerry's like, Oh my god, you're my best friend, you're so how are you you're so good and like choking him with envy to like this ridiculous degree and asking him to host his show and all yeah, that. Exactly. And... Like all of them are like him. Him being either like Jerry Lewis having like a sorry, Jerry Langford having like fallen from grace. They should have just let him be Jerry Lewis. I mean, I know that I know the character was called Jerry Langford before they cast Jerry Lewis, but like, come on, just 
fucking make him Jerry Lewis. Do you think he brought his own monogrammed handkerchiefs <laughs> that already said JL when he like Maybe. did the movie? Maybe. I know he um he consulted a little bit on the movie and like the handling the celebrity the the famous scene where you know he's walking down the street and he's getting recognized by a lot of people and then like that old lady is like hounding him for like an autograph and then please talk to my son he's like I don't have time he's like, you should get cancer or something like that. and like he like coached her specifically on the timing of that and it, it, it just the quick turn on a dime and everything and they portray Jerry as having like this very isolated lonely life and you know on some level oh, poor me poor me I'm very famous but then on the other like you, you see what he goes through and like you know his light you know I know it isn't a real gun but like it could have been and you know, Marsha forces herself into his limo at the beginning and like he's being like clawed at and everything and it does seem quite an unpleasant existence and he seems like just like a depressed and you know, he it's you hear all these stories about stand up comedians and, and legendary comedians who are like bitterly depressed and lonely kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you turn it on when the lights, you know, when the cameras are going, but like outside of that you're a deeply depressed man. But you know, we see him eating dinner alone and, and just sort of like working all hours and then and, and, you know Marsha talks about the thing of like oh he feels safe in crowded areas but then you see him in a crowded area and it does not seem so safe to me yeah it's it's an inch I think he's excellent Jerry Lewis in this like for a you know comedian who appeared in a lot of movies this is like a shockingly good performance in my opinion yeah I mean I what I really like not even really about the performance but like it's the contrast between the fantasy Jerry Langford and the fanta- and the, the, the real Jerry Langford, where Jerry Langford in reality is like a sad man whose kind of like entire existence resolves around like the idea of his celebrity. Like he has no personal attachments as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. No one trusts that it's him on the phone. Yeah. Like whenever he tries to call them. And then in the fantasy, he's like, as you, as you said, like, ah, oh, my good buddy, Rupert Pupkin. Like, but then he's not being harassed while out. Like we w- literally watched scenes where like he cannot go anywhere in public without being harassed. Mm. And then in all of Rupert Pupkin's like fantasies about him when they're in public. Like no he doesn't ag- he doesn't acknowledge that part that that he's bothering him. You know, like uh, from his perspective it's a genuine attempt to be his friend kind of thing and like, you know, he's sincere in everything he's offering and like, oh I'm genuinely good, you just need to give me a chance and everything. Yeah, but even um, like when someone comes over to ask for a signature, they just completely they ignore him. Blank. Yeah, yeah. Well, he imagines himself as more famous than Jerry. Is, yeah, is, that's is... the thing. Is like he's he's kind of gone like he's be- he wants to take a break and he's begging Pupkin to like come in and it, it's like truly, truly fascinating. Like all of the delusions in this movie yeah. are are really and, fascinating. And like again, and I he, think actually like you see the like the, the capital A acting happening from Jerry Lewis in those sequences because you know he's so like crotchety and like sedate in I mean you sort of see three versions. You see the guy who's on television, you see the guy when he's not on television, and then you see Rupert's version of him and they are three distinct like characters almost and, and like the way in which they talk and even like the inflection of the voice changes and it, it, it's I think it's quite impressive for a guy that's not like a full time actor. But yeah, and, and the dream sequences are, are so important obviously to the movie and like I think the first one it's got like kind of a, a not a sepia tone, but there is a visual indicator that this is not real and I think that goes away over time and he starts shooting it exactly like he shoots the other scenes and it really helps muddy the ending (laughs) yeah like you get to the point where like they transition over the movie into being shot like their tv broadcasts yeah like like the one where he's like on the on the Jerry Langford show and like he's doing the interview and then it turns into the wedding (laughs) and then like that's 
kind of the Final Fantasy of the movie is shot in the exact same way. And or it just, is it? Or is it? Again, <laughs> well, will, let's just talk about. No, I think we should talk about it now. And like you know, this is coming off us talking about you know is 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 Deckard a replicant and all that sort of stuff. But like, not planned in any way. But yeah, so I think we have to talk about it because the movie just entirely builds to it. From from those sequences to like the fact that we crucially never see him perform until we see it on TV. Do you think he's good? I don't, but I think he's not good in a way where I could believe he would get laughs on American television. It's, it's one of those interesting <laughs> things, because like, in the Bob Fosse's filmography, he does a filmography on Lenny Bruce, who's obviously like a massively, massively influential comedian who who got multiple, like was arrested multiple times for kind of saying uncouth things in public settings, and basically he was getting like First Amendmented, and like whether or not it was free speech for him to be able to say things about sex and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Uh, and Bob Fosse does a movie about him, which Blank Check covered, and they just do a big, a big episode, kind of like discussing how hard it is for actors to nail the kind of the cadence of stand-up, yeah. and also how far stand-up comedy has kind of progressed since Lenny Bruce was big in the '60s. And so now you've got this kind of 20 years later, where this isn't stand-up comedy in clubs, which I'm sure like is is kind of like the domain of like your George Carlin's who are obviously like pushing the boundaries and like they're they're able to do these things whereas television they're like it's going to be completely fine it's going to be completely aimed at families yeah 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 and and like the, I'm sat there looking at some of these jokes and going like they're kind of pushing a line like this is yeah. like really dark he says how it's like really it's clean it's fine it's good and and you know he's like oh have you heard of something called standards and practices he's like no but you can talk to me about that when I get there and they never do talk about that <laughs> and I think so, you know, we, we see him go out to start and then we cut away to him coming off stage or we cut away and then when we come back, he's come off stage. And then he insists on watching the broadcast in Rita's bar to like prove to her, like, look, I told you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the king of comedy, I'm going to be on Jerry's show. And he is, and he's standing there and we see the entire unbroken act. Like it's, it's almost uncomfortably long, his act. And as I say, I don't think it's good, but I think a lot of TV comedians aren't good. So, like, I could, there are moments of it where I'm like, eh, I guess I could buy him getting these laughs. But, like, is he even getting those laughs? You know, like, is, because some of it is so over the top. And I think I actually kind of agree with the kind of the critique that, that Kathy has of him, which is, like, you know how to do time. Like, you have the timing down. Yeah. Like, he, he is kind of, like, throwing them off. It's just this probably isn't kind of like the A the A plus material yeah. that he's thinking he's going to have. Like the biggest laughs feel like they come at the end when he's just telling the truth, but he's doing it in that kind of like stand-up cadence. Yeah. When well, and it goes back to like, it seems like he's just studied all this stuff in a book and he's just copied enough that he can do an accurate facsimile of like how a comedian talks, but like the material underpinning it is trash. Like it's just like, Oh yeah, my mum was an alcoholic. So, ha! But again, and like you know, we we don't cut away from the television. You know, like we don't see anyone's reactions to the individual jokes. We know that like the FBI guy that drags him away at the end is like, I don't like any of it. And like, it's not like we cut away and read. It's like, oh my god, you were so funny. It's more just like, oh yeah, you were on TV. You were on TV. Like she's kind of like just bemused by this entire thing. <laughs> like like there's the drunk guy at the bar who just kind of goes like, "That's the guy that was on the television." <laughs> one of those two men uh, is Charles Scorsese. One of I think it's the guy who's just like, "How did you do that?" <laughs> Not the guy that's like the guy that was on the TV. The guy that I think that's so so key is at no point like 
even when you see him practicing his routine in front of that like mural of an audience and like what where is he like that building is it seems like it's like a museum or something but they play audience laughter over the top and you can't hear what he's saying at all yeah he's he's got like you hear the opening lines and then yeah, yeah it's and i think all of that is so key to making that ending work because if you see him doing comedy throughout and you know he's either actually good or actually shit that ending doesn't work in my yeah, opinion. <laughs> it's, it's so in contrast to another movie, which I think is about a very similar thing, and it's not The Joker. <laughs> um, you've seen La La Land, I assume, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the scene where Ryan Gosling's character has like taken the job with John Legend and is like performing in the kind of like the jazz group, teaching and, black people about jazz. Yeah, yeah but and then Emma Stone is watching him in the audience, and he's doing this song to this huge crowd, and he's obviously having like a great time on stage. But the movie keeps on cutting to Emma Stone looking kind of like deeply uncomfortable with it, and it kind of really undercuts the scene because it makes me think that you that the movie wants me to think the song is bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. the whereas the obviously intention of the scene is like she's watching him give up his dream. Yeah. Is like what the what the intent of the scene is, but it's so. Yeah, but you can but you can have that reading where like he is reacting very differently to like how everyone else is perceiving it and everything, and like yeah, you see, you know, we see this kind of thing a lot, and the ending obviously is like you know, I mean, <laughs> we're skipping up giant chunks here, but I just think I, for me the whole thing is the ending, like it, what makes it work, and so you know he obviously kidnaps Jerry and forces his way onto the show and we'll talk about the kidnapping stuff and and everything else in a minute but like he he gets his he gets to do a type 5 first guest broadcast then happily goes off to prison and then we get this sort of like tv news coverage where it's like the most watched segment ever because obviously he says in the act like oh you'll find out I was telling the truth tomorrow yeah, eighty-seven um, million people watched it or whatever it is, <laughs> which like is mash like, finale. <laughs> yeah, like huge, huge numbers. Like even in the eighties, when you're looking at that, that's yeah. the kind of viewership that like you really do only get if you're like a finale of a TV show, the Super Bowl. Yeah. I know obviously yeah. the Super Bowl is even higher rated than that, but like I think no, I think literally if you look at like the most the highest rated broadcast, it's like Olympics, Super Bowls, and the Mash finale. Like I think it's the only like original piece of broadcasting that's in there. But but yeah, and like you know. He becomes this overnight celebrity. He signs a book deal for his memoir about it all. He gets released in two years instead of six. They're going to adapt his his book into a movie, and he becomes, you know, there's people waiting for him when he gets out, and then he gets to go on this some show at the end. And it's like, given that the theme of the movie is like critiquing American fascination with celebrity and everything, and given how this has gone in real life uh, with, with with like serial killers getting like fan clubs and so, I mean he's not a serial killer but you know he's a criminal and like the fascination that people have with criminals and celebrities and criminals that become celebrities <laughs> you could see it being a real thing I think the thing that gives it away is like the seven introductions yeah <laughs> but even so like it does work that like to, to give you that ambiguity and I think that's why shooting all the fantasy sequences as like getting progressively more realistic in how they look visually they get, or, like, or like divorcing them from the visual yeah. language of the rest of the movie so that they yeah. all feel of Consistent. a piece yeah, yeah. yeah. it yeah. is just so yeah. again it's shot in such a way that it leaves all the ambiguity present which I think is so key yeah. to making it work yeah. Scorsese himself made a movie about a criminal who sold his book memoir 
that got turned into a movie and it's War for Wall Street, you know? And, like, there are people who think Jordan Beckford is, like, this fucking legend. And it's like, he's a, he still owes money to some people. He ruined a lot of lives. So, you know, there is a theme there throughout the career, completely coincidental. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think the interpretation is, like, that isn't what happened because of how that, like, final, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Rupert Pupkin, over and over and over again, makes it feel... Like that's breaking it, but like you know, you could see some degree of it being true that like he, he that there was like a public fascination with him, even if he doesn't then become a huge comedian kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, that thing is, it would be a very different kind of thing. It would be more like in the modern age, you kind of compare it to something like OJ or the Tiger yeah. King or something, where it's like it's a it's a curio fascination that people have for a minute, but like it doesn't yeah. actually parlay its way into actual fame for for the content of what you've done but more for yeah. the fact that you've done something so you could you could see a world where like the book is a big seller but yeah he doesn't get to be a tv comedian <laughs> no that's, that's that's the kind of the thing that make that kind of for me drives it home into being part of his fantasy is that like he imagines that what he did like makes him more than like he thinks that his talent has shone through at this point when ultimately he would be a like celebrity guest panelist who has come come in to like do interviews and stuff like that to kind of like talk about this yeah. this stuff. Yeah. I mean and and it's also like super obvious that this movie is influenced by things like by John Hinckley and by mm-hmm. the, the guy who assassinated John Lennon who who both have kind of like happened uh in the run up to this. And obviously like it, it because it's with like John Hinckley it also kind of like feeds into the whole taxi driver mm-hmm. dichotomy of this movie that like Scorsese and De Niro have kind of like pointed out where like functionally Pupkin and, and Travis Bickle are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. One is the the kind of the violent coin that kind of gets into the news for assassinations and stalking, and then the other one is this one that society's kind of shrugged off. Yeah. Like here's the but, and that allows him to operate the way he does in many ways. Yeah, exactly. So I I, I I guess we should rewind. Um, from the ending and just talk about like how he goes about this and like I think there's just something quite fascinating about you know he is relentlessly optimistic until he gets the full blown like treatment you know like you know he he is calling and calling and calling he's dropping in the tape he's following up on the tape when she's like he, he for him it's like because Jerry didn't listen to the tape he, yeah, just, that's, that's, he just will not it, yeah. listen to her opinion. Forces his way in. We get like a Scooby Doo style chase from security briefly, and he's fully thrown out of the building with security. You know, people are being less and less polite to him, and that's when he's like, "Right, fuck it, I'm taking Rita to his house." And like, you know, the bemused butler just sort of like, "Well, yeah, he is playing golf, but like, what the fuck, dude?" That's <laughs> because he bamboozles his way in with just enough knowledge to make it seem like yeah. he should be there. And then, and Rita even believes it, you know. And like, you know, to to talk about that again, like, you know, he's Rita. I think they went to school together, and like, she doesn't really remember him, and he's like forced his way back into her life. He's just charming enough to get a dinner date. He completely blows the dinner date. He tells her he loves her as he's like leaving, but the but like when he dangles that idea of like, oh, you can come and meet Jerry Langford, she's like, okay, fine. And then she goes again, and like again, he's kind of nailing it. Like, like we know that he's completely bullshitting it, but like he's doing just good enough a job where Rita is like, okay, and like she's making herself at home and everything. And then like you know when Jerry comes home and it's like, I mean, you know, he's just silent for so long, 
And and Rupert just talks and talks and talks and talks. He's so good in the scene because he just lets him dig this hole, and like mm-hmm. I don't, it's it's like it transitions from bemusement into actual anger, mm-hmm. and then like the only one of the two of them who's picking up the social cues, as you said, is Rita, who's like mm-hmm. realizing just this bubbling anger inside Jerry Langford. Yeah. Like, I like she steals that. Like, is it like an ashtray box or something? Or, yeah, she's or a like, box? I, I shouldn't be here, but also I'm going to get something out of this because yeah. I've been completely fucking mortified. And I, th- I, and I think that like goes with the theme of like, you know, obviously we have these people, these extreme people who are obsessed with celebrity. But then even Rita, who is quote unquote normal, even she can't resist fucking stealing from this man's home, and like she was willing to go out with this guy that like she clearly wouldn't have ever seen again if if not for this offer of going to meet him. And like you know, you see it on the street with like harmless people who are like bothering him, and like that that lady who tells him he should do nothing but get cancer or whatever. <laughs> so I think you know it all like ties back into the main theme where like everybody is to some degree obsessed with. With Jerry Langford and like with celebrity and yeah, general. they're just they're obsessed with fame. They're obsessed with coming off well in front of other people. Like you have, like Tony Randall as himself with the <laughs> exasperation that he's being asked to read about this guy, and like every single time that like one of the the pages gets turned, he's like, "Speed up! I want to get through this quickly because like this is going to tamp my career." You've got like the guy who's supposed to be the third guest who's been bumped for this monologue who. I wrote this book, damn it. I spent two years in China and two years in Russia. Am I a communist now? And, you know, um, and I love that that distraction allows Rupert to just stroll in. And, like, he's savvy enough to duck back and then wait, and then in he goes. This fascinating look at, like, what the culture of celebrity is and how everyone is just looking for their piece of the pie. Absolutely. Um, And, like, you know, for the opening scene to be just Jerry trying to get into a limo. And it's, like, Mm. this, this huge fight and, like, they freeze on that shot of of Rupert looking in at Masha's hands on the on the on the, the, the I, window. I love the look in, in De Niro's eyes when mm. he realizes that, like, oh, if I help Save you, him, yeah, yeah, if I if I do something, then I can get away with it. And like, yeah. and again, like, it's Lewis plays all of the scenes so well where he's kind of cornered, where it's like an exasperated thing, but it's like mm. there, there's a sense of tension where like. He obviously thinks that Pupkin isn't going to try and kill him. Yeah. But, like, you have to imagine that's going through his head. That's like, this guy's a fucking nut job. I don't know what he's going to do mm-hmm. in two seconds. Yeah. Which is so good. Um, I guess we need to talk about Masha. Because Sandra, as I said, Sandra Bernhardt is putting on this incredible performance at the end of the movie. And, like, I think, as I said, like, I think it's interesting that they're presented as this, like, ring of regulars you know this is what they do like this is their little this is I mean, their they're scene all, they're trading signatures with each yeah. other and stuff like that and they've all got people that like they really really like where some of them are like i will go get a signature for this person and then but this is like my white whale this is the one that i want yeah. to like impress and get it i mean like when when pupkin's going through his book and again mm-hmm. to get a bit onto that theme of like just desiring celebrity when he's like oh you'll really love this signature and and Rita describes describes the signatures as like written by someone like an R words person, and and he's like, it's my signature. Like <laughs> I've made it intentionally unintelligible. Yes, and you never see the signature, and he's mm-hmm. like, ah, yeah, but like the, the the more of a scroll it is, the busier the person, and therefore the more famous they are. Absolutely. 
Oh god, yeah. But yeah, and, Masha, and like Masha Diane, Diane Abbott is 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 good throughout as Rita, just sort of this sort of like intensely normal person, as it were. Like you know, she she's, she's a bartender. She's, she's, she's a little bit yeah. sad. She's a little because bit, she's like, a bartender. She's had this time with like guys like hounding her, of course. And yeah. she's like, I know. I know the bare minimum I have to do to kind of like get away with this. And obviously, like she was married to De Niro mm. at the time of this movie. Like they got divorced. I think about like five years later. But like there is a level never recovered of from this awkward date. <laughs> but there is a level of like kind of like chemistry that they have, yeah, like a comfortability in the things they have together yeah. that kind of like does drive home. It is pretty shocking that, that she's like, I guess you're entitled to come up for coffee because, I mean, for a lot of people, coffee after a date is code for come have sex with me. <laughs> and it's like, is that what she means? <laughs> or, like, yeah, it's surprising she isn't just like, get, get away from me, dude. Because she does, like, yeah. turn away from the kiss and everything. But yeah, and then, but then that's contrasted with Masha, yeah. who is, who <laughs> is just, she's so openly. She's like, over not the top. Okay. Yeah, 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 for the for the entire movie, and yeah. it's like that's like Pupkin is a subtler kind of like delusion. And or, I think I think he I think he kind of tries to part, especially in contrast to her. He he uses her to like make himself look and feel more professional and, yeah, and, and, and adult. Also, and probably everything. like some ingrained like sexism from the fact that he's wearing suits. He looks presentable, whereas yeah. she's got this like manic look her hair's like just that little bit more unkempt than his is yeah, that just yeah. whenever he sees her do something so outsized he kind of like uses it to to kind of like squeeze his way in just gives and her then, little jabs as well along the way yeah. that like oh you 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 don't know what you're doing i i'm a professional <laughs> i think the the clearest sign of it in the movie that the two of them are operating the same level is like that scene when they're just walking down the street together and they're having like the full-blown argument shouting at each other in the streets in new york and like you've been there in that situation like you've walked the streets of like the city that you live in and you've just seen people just full-on yelling at each other and you've got no idea what's happening you've got mm. no idea what what would overcome a person to be able to do this in public and not have that sense of yeah. like shame or like when it's so embarrassing the clash laugh at you you know <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, yeah like, no, you're you're absolutely right. And like her throwing the money at him to like give him the letter and stuff like that because yeah. he's like, I've given you all this stuff, I've given you yeah. all the tips, I've given you my spot. But like, is he giving her his spot so like she can he can muscle his way into a better spot? And yeah, I, and I, I again, I think that stuff is interesting. Where you, like you, we see this brief window into like their past and like the things he's done and, and the, the extremes they all go to and the, the casualness with which they talk about this stuff that is quite frankly stalking. There's also an interesting undercurrent of like, you know, she ostensibly has wealthy parents and you know, you don't know if it's like, because she's got resources and potentially doesn't need to work and has potentially been neglected by her like high powered parents, it's led to this world where she is reaching out to these people and stuff and like again, we don't know if Pupkin's mother is alive and he lives in her basement or not. But like they are very decidedly taking this stance of like adults who still live with their parents kind of Or are relying on their parents. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In some way, which is I mean, even on the level of like if you assume that that Pupkin's mum is still alive mm -hmm. or is dead or whatever. Like, just imagining what that tape sounds like. I mean, I have, you have to assume that it is she is alive because otherwise it is a man yelling at nothing. And I think the fact that we never hit. Well, I mean, 
I don't know how many. I'm we not, never, I'm we not never a professional, but like we never, we never see tape. him talk. Yeah, and we never hear the tape. We also never see any other instances of him potentially talking to himself outside of the apartment. And maybe it is just a context thing. And like in his head, this is where his mum would be. So this is where he talks to his mum, and he only talks to his mum or whatever. But we don't know. But I do think it's interesting they have that parallel to them and like. He presents himself as like so different from her, but it kind of seems the only difference is that she's wealthier than him. She's a little bit more open about how she behaves, and he thinks that he is a lot more suave. And at times he is, but it, it always does just give way. And you see these moments where he does get a little bit more impassioned, like when they're actually trying to throw him out, and when Jerry actually tells him to go, and he suddenly turns. He's like, oh, people like you, kind of thing. Oh, yeah, celebrity, you know, never meet your heroes, kind of thing. Um, and he says he's going to work 50 times harder and all of this stuff. And I, lo- I love that Jerry's like, yeah, and then people like you will come and bother you. And he just doesn't even really engage with that comment. <laughs> because as you said, like in the dream sequence where like Rupert doesn't even take into account how Jerry is treated and doesn't see how he is treating Jerry and just thinks, oh, it's it's fine. It's normal. All very funny. And then, you know, obviously it builds to the kidnapping. You know, he's he's burnt the bridges. Like he's been thrown out of the building. The most lackadaisical kidnapping ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, they just wait to follow him, and then it's literally just, like, hop out the car, push him in the backseat, and then they're kind of done. Yeah. Like, obviously, like, I'm sure kidnappings are probably that simple if you know exactly <laughs> where you need to go, and you, you I think find it, them in, like, a... I think it is distressingly easy to kidnap <laughs> someone, unfortunately. It's just, you know, you probably will get caught if you don't kill them, so... But, like... Everybody in the kidnapping is so fucking good. Like, I adore Jerry's, like, quiet confoundment at these cue cards. Like, he's furious, but in such a bored sounding way. He's like, you got a blank card. Can, can, can you go back I, I, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't make grammatical sense. <laughs> yeah, where he's, like, critiquing his, the quality. Like, even his cards... Even the material he's written for these cue cards is bad, you know, is is the reading on it that like he's yeah. a bad comedian because he can't write this either, kind of thing. And then even down to like De Niro just kind of like shrugging it off. Like at no point is he mad that, no. that Langford is kind of like insulting him to his face. Like oh, he doesn't get he it. Re- That's the point. Like he he's not picking up on subtle cues where he's like mocking him to his face and he's just like, Oh sorry, I'll just turn the card around. It's great physical comedy on the part of De Niro. Like all of the stuff where he's like dropping the cards, getting them the wrong way around, and like realizing mm. it. Because he's so chill and laid back, and is like, like he like slowly turns. He's obviously wearing those huge fucking sunglasses that are supposed <laughs> to make him look like a blind person. That never, like he never even uses the the stick outside to make himself like it. Yeah. It's a bizarre affectation that he's put on that benefits nobody and nothing involved in any of this scheme which makes it so fascinating um his awful hawaiian shirt Mm -hmm. in like the entirety of the scene and then and then masha is just yeah just this slow descent into just like i want to throw myself at him i'm gonna seduce this guy putting the sweater on him is my favorite where the 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 arms don't even connect to the main thing it's like oh I'm so glad I love him in this. You know, I'm so yeah, glad I went with She Red. hasn't finished knitting it yet or whatever. And, uh, and, and then, he's like, just perfect as this foil who just looks constantly like grumpy, but he, he never like snaps. You know, even when he's chucking 
them out of the house. He's actually quite sedate in his anger. Well, I, it feels like one of those things where, like, he he knows that, like, if he does something surprising, like, yeah. he might die. And I like yeah, that yeah. as, like, a read on him where he's just like, A, he's dealt with so much of this shit in his real life. <laughs> that he's just kind of like, right, let's not antagonize these people because yeah. who knows what they can do. So let's keep it calm. And, like, he also kind of understands that, like, because he is actively more aware of like what words mean mm-hmm. he's able to like completely underpin everything that they do and they just won't react because they yeah. don't understand that he's doing this like biting critique of them at the same time <laughs> and i like, like that i like that when he he briefly almost tricks rupert into letting him out and mash is the one that's like don't be fucking stupid like why would he and then he's like ah yeah you're right and then uh, obviously rupert leaves them alone together and just yeah an incredible performance, as I said, from uh, Sandra Bernard, where, yeah, like, the one-sided conversation is a difficult thing to pull off, and she's going from, like, these, like, casual, like, quote-unquote funny remarks to, like, I love you, and then... But it's also intercutting with, like, with Rupert Sapp being interviewed by the FBI and the police. Yeah. And you're just, like, intercutting, like, every so often, like, you think, like... You don't understand why the FBI and the police are being so nice to him and like acquiescing to his demands, and then you cut back to Masha, who is just holding this entire one-sided conversation with the occasional close-up of like Jerry Lewis, yeah. just like only his eyes able yeah. to react to anything that's going on. Just, yeah, uh, and like you know, her slowly lighting the candles, her singing at him, and like this quite hostile way saying like oh my god the the bedroom would be cliche let's just throw everything off the table and make love right here i've never done anything impulsive like that oh you'd love it wouldn't you i would love it and then just slowly undressing and and then she's just in underwear for the rest of the movie yeah it's just so gloriously uncomfortable but in a way that i just really admire how hard she committed to this scene and like i don't know how jerry lewis kept a straight face throughout it and you know Where? we don't we don't condone violence against women, but like given everything they put him through, maybe fair that he slaps someone. Yeah, the slap the slap feels like deserved at that point in time. Ultimately, <laughs> like well, I mean, to be fair, his first impulse may have been to shoot her. Possibly. Oh, he did. Yes, he fires once into the air, and it's like a Nerf gun or whatever. And then he like does shoot three of them at her, and it's like, what if? <laughs> like, would you have fired the gun and then actually shot her? Who knows. <laughs> But so, yeah, and I, I love also like the final thing we see from him is he's clearly furious <laughs> that Rupert is on like all the TV screens, and I love that he doesn't hear his act either. Like, which really again I think helps sell the idea that like how much of what we're seeing at the end is real. Like, we don't we have no confirmation other than the FBI agent saying I didn't like any of your jokes. There's like no giveaway whatsoever that anyone yeah, has again, actually like, heard every, what we have heard <laughs> everyone in the bar's reaction is that guy was on tv yeah like we like the fame of having someone who was on the tv not wow that content was good yeah. especially when you think like have you ever done any like live tapings of tv shows and stuff like that no <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah 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 sorry no i have, I have. yeah it, it's one of those things where like you're in such a heightened environment mm. that you do tend to like react more than yeah. you would if you were at home Oh yeah, and there, there is there is definitely a thing of like performative laughter for sure. So I've got two. Well, one is kind of like a segment. I think we just need to bash out at the end of this, and the other one is where does this rank generally for you in terms of like Scorsese? Like, is this kind of like a number two to Goodfellas, or, or is it your favorite of all time? It's an interesting one for me because 
it's not a fun movie. There are there are a few fun moments, but it is quite a tense thing to sit through for like almost two hours of like as I said, it's kind of always at that level of like something's going to happen. And it never really does. So I, I think it's one of those ones where like I respect how good it is more than I like actively love watching it. So mm. like it's it's a difficult one for me to rank because like I would sooner throw on The Departed or Shutter Island or even The Wolf of Wall Street, which I don't really like. Like like I would more enthusiastically put those on, but because think... they're they're less kind of like oppressive watches yeah. and they're more kind of like fun thrillery. Like yeah. Departed, the... particularly, is like an eminently watchable yeah. movie, yeah. even and... with how long it is. <laughs> and whereas this is like deliberately so uncomfortable, and like you know, you can see how this is the movie that launched a thousand careers who who love this sort of flat comedy, uncomfortable. Uh, you know, you might want to use the word fun comfortable. Like, I know I mean, Steve Carell is a huge fan of this, and you can tell um, in the style of comedy he does. So, I mean, I I wouldn't call this my like my absolute favorite, but it's it's very high on the list for me. Okay, uh, and what then just uh, I I've not seen like there's I've got a too, few too many gaps, but it's kind of like there's there's the the three at the top of the list of kind of like Goodfellas, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver for me in terms of mm. Scorsese's like filmography and then there's just a whole mess of kind of like Irishman Wolf of Wall Street um, Departed this that are all just kind of like vying for that kind of like what's the fourth spot on Scorsese's mm. kind of like Mount Rushmore if yeah. you say it's those first three um, but yeah generally a filmmaker I like really enjoy yeah I mean uh, I know he I know he is one of him. yeah I know he's one of these ones that like wanky film bros like adore him and it does feel a little bit like, okay, but like, he's undeniably really uh, yeah, fucking good like, at what he does. <laughs> that's the thing, is like him, Tarantino, Fincher, Nolan, like, they get talked about too much. And I know you're not like a huge fan of Tarantino, but like, there is something undeniable in a pure talent. He knows how to direct. I have no dispute about his ability to direct. I just yeah. take issue with his writing a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he knows how to point a camera at stuff and make it look real good. Yeah. But yeah, Scorsese. I mean, <laughs> breaking news from our podcast four years in. Scorsese good at directing. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it feels like it. It's like him and Spielberg feel like two two ties of the same coin. Like one is the the eminent kind of like I can I can do a public facing movie that's going to be like loved by the masses, and then Scorsese is like this. They're slightly more intelligent, but still aimed at like the the mass like the masses kind of. Ugh. Yeah, but like, yeah. but there's there's a scuzziness to what he makes, or like rawness, a, a danger kind of thing. Where Spielberg is like good old wholesome, <laughs> like all American boy who's just making gentle stuff you can watch with your grandparents. Yeah, and, exactly. and like, you know, Scorsese is not shy about incredible amounts of violence and, and drug use and and slurs and all kinds of things. But you know, at the end of the day, it's a very good filmmaker. Right, and then the final thing that I just think we have to do is just we just have to list off a few other things that this is better than Joker for. <laughs> okay, God, we'll be here a while. Uh, right, so the the character of Zazie Beetz, Zazie Beetz's character in in Joker compared to to Rita in this movie, one is a deeply misogynistic version of the other, and I think that's what makes it like so uncomfortable. Like the delusions in Joker being used to to hide 
like actual violence and actual abuse of women yeah. whereas the delusions in this movie are not about that it's just this guy fantasizing about like marrying this woman and just yeah. wanting to impress her because like she's rebuffed him like multiple times over the course of the movie yeah and we but, don't get a reveal later on that he let himself into our house and murdered her and her son um <laughs> yes exactly like the mother character like him going to fucking murder francis conroy and joker in comparison to this movie where like everything with the mother is kind of left understated to kind of like make yeah. you question everything about it is just unquestionably a, a better choice yeah. Yeah. Um, i mean there is no definitive answer about whether his mother is alive or not and it's just like you know <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just thinking like that entire movie is like, and again, that's the one in Joker that makes me think of like you were never really here, where it's like again, it's a similar relationship mm. with with a mother character, except you were never really here is like so much more psychologically interested in the dynamic between the two of them, whereas Joker is just like abused woman make him mentally ill, mm. la 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 la. The entire fucking final set piece on the show on Joker is. <laughs> dog shit in comparison yeah. to what this movie does and i guess i guess i mean yeah, we talk about the comparisons i think the most obvious thematic connection is robert de niro gets to play the host in joker um rather than the than the arthur flat roof at pumpkin character I, it's just such an exercise in like you can be a fan of something and have no idea why it's good and i think that also applies to like Zack Snyder, who name drops all the right things, but like you see what he makes and it is soulless. Um, and he can make a thing look exactly like another thing, but he's lost the essence of it. And like Todd Phillips is a dullard, quite frankly. Like, you know, he made some funny movies, but like he is incapable of presenting a movie as like subtle. Todd Phillips is a shock director. He's more <laughs> interested in getting a reaction out of you. And I'm yeah. sure he's probably sat there, like, if he ever listened to our mini Joker episode, or us talking about it now, he'd be sitting there with the glee and saying, yes, yes, they're doing exactly what I wanted them to do. And it's yeah, like, man. you can do shocking things, but make a good movie around it, yeah. at the very least. And the fact that, like, your version of the end of the King of Comedy is to have a murder live on Earth and such a riot is just the lowest common denominator, obvious bullshit that you could possibly yeah. pull and to like with again kind of like give him the like hero worship treatment where he gets to stand on the ta on the cop car while everyone cheers for him and he gets and to do the dance number and but even down to like the difference in how they present the comedy mm. where like Arthur Fleck is bad yeah. at comedy and the movie makes a point to kind of like almost makes you want to laugh at him yeah like everyone else is taking the piss out of him. The only yeah. reason he's invited on the show is because he's bad and because his video has gone viral. Yeah. And they want to laugh at the dumb, like mentally, and, mentally and that, unstable person. And that is hugely in contrast to this, where like Rupert's almost sympathetic. Like he, like you feel bad for him because he is just clueless. But like we don't know if he's bad or not. And I, you know, I think my comment that like I think he's bad, but I also think a lot of American TV comedians are bad so therefore maybe he's good by their standards like i mean yeah I, I don't think this movie wants you to laugh at rupert pupkin i think it wants you to sympathize with him and then like joker is like oh man he's not getting his meds so he's gone insane and also like look how bad he is at comedy lol it's just bad. it's just it's, 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 just, it's, so just, it's, it's just a kind of lowest common denominator version of this movie like yeah. what if you made the obvious version of this movie that's dripping in violence and dripping in misogyny yeah. and and dripping in just like a complete ignorance of kind of like mental health issues whereas mm. this movie just feels like 
again, doing the same thing. We're not going to put a label on it, but we're going to definitely show you that these people are unstable and, mm. and the tension will come from just kind of like not knowing how unstable they are. But like yeah. in reality, they're just kind of like these gentle people who just want to get their way. Well, what if you made a, a sequel that's a musical? <sighs> it's the only reason why I'm even remotely interested is I'm just like, the fuck is this movie going to be? Yeah. Um, and well, hopefully it's the last time that we talk Joker on this network, but you will almost inevitably have to go see Joker 2, won't you? Uh, no, no thank you. <laughs> no thank you. You're drawing, the, you're drawing the line there. Yeah, I didn't go and see Joker 1. Um, I, I watched it, but I did not give anyone any money because <laughs> fuck that movie. Anyway, um, that's King of Comedy. It's just, it's raw and real and it's good, man. <laughs> Speaking of raw... God. Uh, next week, we will be looking at Trading Places, a altogether more intentional comedy movie than this one is. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. As again, we just will not stick to two movies in a row that have the same time. Um, I don't know if when we're going to hit that point. I think there is it is going to happen. But uh, for now, yeah, the tone of whiplash continues. Uh, but that is next week. In contrast, though, how much can we go through that movie without discussing the director? <laughs> There's a fun challenge. Start a clock when we, when we start recording next week. Uh, but yes, this has been The King of Comedy. Next week is Trading Places. I have been Matt Waters. You have been Ben Phillips. And Ben, you have one last duty for me. Will there be movies? There will be movies, but like I'm going to have to go to prison now for... <laughs> Uh, having completely hijacked this podcast for the last hour, and hopefully I'll get my own like solo spin-off podcast where I'm better than you. Oh god, have you listened to many solo podcasts? I find them deeply uncomfortable, even if the person is good at covering for the fact they're by themselves. Not a fan. Not a fan of like not having someone to bounce off conversationally to make this yeah, better. Yeah, I, I just I find them almost secondhand embarrassing, even if the person does have like the gift of the gab and can just like uphold a one-sided conversation for like an hour two hours or whatever anyway that's one-sided podcast and this is a two-sided podcast and it's done bye everyone bye still i didn't know and i did it for so long